We thank you for the opportunity we've already had this morning to sing your word, to read your word, to pray your word. And Lord, now we come to the preaching of the word. Father, Lord, we also recognize we are not the only church gathered here this morning. Lord, I, I want to pray for uh, a mentor church of mine, uh, Third Avenue Baptist Church. Uh, they're in Louisville, Kentucky, Lord. I, I thank you for that dear church and the impact they have had on my own life. And God, I pray for uh, their pastor, Greg Gilbert, as he steps into the pulpit and preaches your word. And pray, Lord, that you will continue to uh, stir that church and move that church. Uh, Lord, as they uh, continue to, to grow according to your word. And Father, pray that you will continue to do that there. Father, Lord, we also want to pray for uh, our missionaries around the world, Lord, we want to pray for uh, our missionaries in Southern Asia, Lord, and in particular thinking of, of the regions of Nepal and uh, Thailand, Father, Lord, areas of heavy Buddhism and, and ethnic uh, and cultural religions. God, Lord, we pray for our IMB missionaries as they labor here uh, amongst these people. We pray for your word to go out. We pray, Lord, that uh, in, in the places uh, like Nepal and, and Thailand, both of where great poverty has struck in those nations, Lord, for uh, means of, of gospel work to go in and, and to meet real physical needs, uh, Lord, and, and means of the gospel going out. God, we pray for faithfulness there amongst our missionaries, and we pray to God that your work would have its effect there as we're about to turn and look in Nineveh. God, we pray for your work to do that work. Lord, we pray for you to move through the power of your spirit, even now preparing hearts to draw near to yourself. Father, Lord, we also want to just uh, pray, Lord, as you have called us to, to pray for those who are in authority over us. God, Lord, uh, this week our, our nation uh, witnessed the uh, inauguration of, of a new president and vice president. Father, Lord, so we want to pray for President Biden and Vice President Harris. God, we pray, Lord, that the good that you will have them do, Lord, that it will succeed. We pray that evil that they will do, Lord, will fail. We pray for them to rule, not according to their own purpose and agenda, but in your righteousness, and seeing that it is you who have placed them there for such a time as this. That they are nothing more than there for your purpose and for your glory. God, help humble them in seeing that. God, Lord, I pray, Lord, even, even in their turn in the White House, Lord, you would turn their hearts to you. Lord, I, I know uh, even our, our president would claim to be a Catholic, but it, it seems nominal at best. God, so we pray, Lord, that you grip his heart and save him, as well as our vice presidents. God, do this work. Use men and women. Uh, Lord, in particular, thinking of, of the Christians on Capitol Hill and, and uh, churches around there, as well as uh, those involved with the ERSD and uh, an arm and branch of the Southern Baptist Convention. Lord, use these brothers and sisters uh, to do a work there. God, Lord, we also want to just give you praise for our brother Richard's successful surgery this past week. Father, Lord, we praise you that he is already back at, at the manor and and God, Lord, we pray for continued healing and wisdom and, and what is next. God, we pray that your hand would be on him and physically heal him and be rid of, of what 
God, now as we come to Jonah 3 and the preaching of your word, God, I pray that our hearts will be soft and tender. God, I pray that the word would bear deep and good soil in our hearts and have the effect on us that you intend for it to. God, I pray for you to do the work. I pray that as I am your mouthpiece, as I am your spokesman, that the people would hear you and not me. God, help us now to turn our attention to your word, to hear from you. Will you speak to us? God, we pray and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in thinking of how to start our week off, as you know, I kind of like to, to give us an introduction and launching point into kind of where I'm going. And I think it's fitting as, as we uh, hear our six days removed from Martin Luther King Jr. Day to, to think about one of his speeches and uh, his I Have a Dream speech in particular. You know, if you've listened to that or, or were alive and heard it in, in that time, it was a powerful speech. It gripped hearts, it moved people. People were impassioned at fighting for justice, and rightly so, and I pray that will continue. But he spoke such plain language and simpleness that it gripped those in attendance that day. It gripped a nation and still continues to move people even a generation after. And pray that it does so long after. Well, similarly, we come to a simple message in Jonah 3 today. Jonah goes and declares something very simple. God's wrath will come on Nineveh in 40 days. Something so simple, something so plain, and yet, and yet that simple, plain message creates a movement, an awakening in the city of Nineveh. That's where we're going to be picking up uh, this morning in Jonah 3. So, so far we've seen Jonah is a whiny prophet. Jonah doesn't get his way, so he goes and and pitch, pitches a hissy fit. I'm sure none of us did that as children or, or have not witnessed our children do that. Pitching a, a fit when they don't get their way, or us pitching a fit when we don't get ours. Actually, Jonah summed up. He's a whining prophet. And yet, the Lord took this whining, disobedient prophet, disciplined him, and Jonah remembered the Lord in whom he served. The big, great fish that swallowed him vomits him out on land. And then we meet Jonah here, freshly vomited out of this great fish. And that's where we pick up at Jonah 3. So hear the word of the Lord from Jonah 3, beginning in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. 
sackcloth, and let him call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. What in the world does this have to do with us in 2021 in Central City, Illinois? I think this is the main point, and this affects us as much as it did Nineveh. As as God's word goes out, belief and repentance are necessary to receive God's mercy. That's it. As God's word goes out, belief and repentance are necessary to receive God's mercy. We're going to look at this in three points. Point number one, God's word goes out. Point number two, God's word is believed. And point number three, God repents. So let's look first here. God's word goes out. So we, we open Jonah 3 in verse 1 there. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Such an interesting phrase that the word came to Jonah a second time. Brothers and sisters, this should give us hope. Here, a a forgotten prophet, a disciplined prophet, a prophet who was swallowed by this great fish and ended up being vomited out using that strong language, God speaks to again a second time. The Lord is not done with Jonah. Jonah is experiencing God's redemption even as he has faced the Lord's discipline. Jonah is still God's purpose in a mission before him. Brothers and sisters, if God can use somebody like Jonah, the whiny prophet, the one who tried to flee from the presence of God, I want us to think about this. How much more can he use you and me? How much more can he use us who are disobedient, who fail often, How can he use us to mumble and stutter with words like he did Moses for his purpose, to be his redeeming messenger? God is calling Jonah, as well as each one of us, to speak redemptively into others' lives. By using that word, speaking redemptively, God is calling us to speak truth with gentleness in hopes of restoration out of our mouths. You know, we've been here a short time in comparison. It's been a long three months in the sense of getting settled in and and with COVID and trying to figure that out. But in one sense, we still don't know many of you. We're trying to get to know most of you. But we're still slowly going to learn as we get to spend more and more time. But I think I figured out this about us. And and I say us collectively because I'm as guilty and, and Darcy can back me up on this. We like to give our opinions. We like our opinions to be made known. Whether it's using social media or in conversation, we like people to know what we think. We, we like to share that. But I want us to, to think about this. If we're called to speak redemptively into people's lives, as Jonah's being called to speak redemptively to Nineveh, how are we using our words? Are we merely giving our opinion and thought, or are we speaking gracefully and truthfully and gently to one another? 
whether it's those that are lost on the outside who, who we would disagree with on things, or whether it's the person in the pew next to you or behind you. How are we speaking redemptively to one another? Husbands, how are we speaking to our wives? Are we speaking redemptively and encouraging them, especially in, in the rounds of their faith? Are we building them up so that they're grounded in who they are in Christ? Are we encouraging them and helping them find time in the Word? Are we helping them around the house so that they can get off for a moment and pray? How are we doing, men? Wives, how are you doing? Are you helping your husband to have that time? Or, or is it, it, as we see in the Proverbs, nagging? Are you uh, not building up and encouraging your husband, but always complaining what he's not done? Brothers and sisters, how are we speaking redemptively in our marriages, let alone in this church? As you think about it, the person next to you, in front of you, behind you, do you see them as in the same body of Christ as you are, with the same head as Jesus, our King? If Jesus is our head and we're all in the same body, should we not care for every member of this local church? You know? Uh, a few months ago, I uh, was trying to fix something, and, and being the knucklehead that I was, I was using a knife to try and do it. <laughs> Dumb mistake. I knew better. I'd grown up using pocket knives all my life. The knife cut came down on my finger, and it was probably cut open for two or three weeks. Probably should have gone and had it looked at, but I'm too stubborn and prideful. I didn't do that. But the point is that one finger, I don't use it much, but I care for it. I, I immediately covered it. I immediately put all the bandage on it. I was sanitizing it regularly to keep it clean, even though it was a finger I barely use in my day to day. How are we using one another from the lowest of us to the pastor and in between? How are we speaking redemptively to one another? in our lives. Let us build up the body of Christ in being messengers of redemption. We are called to speak God's word to one another. To point people to Jesus who are lost, but also to point us back to Jesus. Let us be messengers of the Lord in speaking his word into one another's lives. Let us speak redemptively to one another. That's what Jonah is being called to do. He's called to speak redemptively to the people of Nineveh. He's called to go out a second time and declare God's word to them. So what is this message? There in verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call against it the message I tell you. Now look back with me to chapter 1 and verse 2. In Jonah 1 2, it says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. So, so far the same. Here's where it changes. For their evil has come up before me. So in Jonah 1 2, God gives Jonah a very specific message. He's to call out against Nineveh. Because our evil has come against, uh, before him. In Jonah 3 2, Jonah's just called to arise 
and go to Nineveh and call out against it the message that I tell them. So Jonah, and Jonah 1 is originally giving a specific message. Now Jonah is being called to go and declare the message of the Lord, whatever it is. Jonah goes from having a specific thing to non-specific. In other words, whatever message the Lord gives Jonah, he's to go and proclaim. No matter how far, no matter how difficult, no matter how challenging it is, Jonah is being called this time, the second time the word comes to him, to go and declare the word of the Lord to the people of Nineveh. Brothers and sisters, in the same way, whatever message the Lord is giving to us from his word, we are to go and proclaim, regardless of how pointed it is or, or how it is in the sense of we're called to go in general. That should be enough. We're called to go. It shouldn't be a specific people we're called to if the Lord's not speaking that way. If the Lord has called us to go, we should be going in, in the flow of our everyday lives. Right here where we're at in Central City and in Southern Illinois and to the ends of the earth. Let us be faithful to go and, and declare what the Lord has called us to. So, there in Jonah 3 3, it says, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Previously, Jonah had fled from it. Now he's obedient and he goes. He's faithful to go this time. Why? Because he had tasted of the Lord's redemption. He had tasted of the Lord's grace to him. When he remembered the Lord, when he cried out to him, the Lord spoke. He remembered. He heard Jonah's prayer. Jonah had tasted that grace and forgiveness of the Lord. And how he was going, renewed. He was going as one who had tasted the grace of God. We can't go unless we, with willingness and eagerness, unless we first tasted the grace of God. But Jonah goes, and it gives some detail here. It says, uh, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. To give, give some perspective on this, Three days journey would have probably been anywhere from 9 to 12 miles a day journey. So from, I looked it up this morning, from I-57 there on 161 until Hoffman, it's about 9-something miles. So, so one day journey. So Nineveh is triple that. That's how wide Nineveh is, and probably a very populated city. This is how great the city is that Jonah is being sent to. Jonah's being sent to this exceedingly great city. And Jonah began to go into the city there in verse 4, going a day's journey. So, so about that distance from I-57 to Hoffman, he journeyed into Nineveh. And it would have kept going, tripled that again. And he declares this message. He says, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be over. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overcome. Now, we don't know whether Jonah began preaching the moment he entered Nineveh, or, and this is as far as he got, or, or this is where he got to, and then he started proclaiming. Regardless of it, Jonah proclaims this word, this simple message, this clear and pointed message, that Nineveh's under judgment. That in 40 days, God's wrath and judgment are going to come against him. 
We don't know if this is a, the whole message Jonah spoke or is this is the summary. What we do know, though, is Jonah was faithful to declare a simple and clear message. As he declared this simple message, we need to be reminded that what we're called to go and proclaim is something seared, simple, and clear. I pray every week that as I prepare and study that I can communicate clearly. I'm going to stumble over words, but I want the whole of it to be clear and simple for us. For to take God's word, unfold it faithfully, and then apply it directly to where we're at. To show how this still speaks to us in 2021 here in our city. In our time. That's what Jonah did. He was faithful and clear to the word. He was clear to proclaim this word. This is all that we're called to do when we go out and share the gospel. This is what we're called to do when we're discipling people. This is what we're called to do as we're leading people to understand what it means to follow Christ. Simple and clear truth. Simple and clear teaching. We don't have to explain as we're giving the gospel the trinity. We don't have to explain the four views of the end times as we're sharing the gospel. What do we need to proclaim? Simple and clear. One, God created us in his image. We sinned against our God who created us as his image bearers. And God made a way to restore us in and through Jesus, who came, lived without sin, went to the cross, dying on our behalf, rose again to defeat. That's it. That's the simple and clear message of the gospel. That's what we're going to be called to both sharing with those who have yet to believe and point one another back to. There's a reason the gospel's in here every week. It's not just for an unbeliever that might watch online or uh, walk into our service. It's here because we need this reminder. We need to be reminded of what it is that has saved us. It's not because we're here on this Sunday morning or have been for 50 years. It's because Jesus came and loved us and died for our sins. This is the simple message of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we are saved by God's grace to us in Christ. That's the simplicity of it. And that's what we need to be clear about. Jesus died for our sins. It's not just so that we can have good morals. It's because we were desperately in trouble without God's grace, and he gave it in Christ. That's the simple, clear message we need to proclaim. And as that word goes out, it has an effect. It has an effect today as it did in Nineveh. So let's look here at our second point this morning. God's word is the need. Jonah 3, 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. This simple, clear word, it goes out of Jonah's mouth, and they believe. From the least to the greatest, from the least being probably the lowest peasant, to the greatest being ultimately the king, as we see in verse 6. The king of Nineveh heard this word. 
great effects on the city of Nineveh, so much that they fasted and put on sackcloth. So first, let's look at this, the fact that they believed God. As Jonah spoke, as Jonah declared this message, the people didn't believe just Jonah. It says they believed God. Yes, Jonah was the one speaking, but they recognized as Jonah spoke, he was the mouthpiece of God. Therefore, they didn't believe Jonah. They believed God himself. That God's word was true. That God was trustworthy and was going to be the one to carry out what he said. They believed who he said he was. That he was the one who was going to judge them. They believed God. They responded. Believing in God doesn't mean just an outward confession, brothers and sisters. It is a heartfelt reality that we truly believe it, and because we truly believe it, we act upon those beliefs. If you sit and say, I believe in Jesus, and your life has not changed, you have not believed in the Jesus of the Bible. I'm sorry. But I, I can't stand up here and say that by simply saying we believe, we're true believers of Jesus. We must act upon that belief. And we see that in Nineveh. They repented of sins. They felt sorrow for sin. To truly believe God and to believe in His Word, that means we have to realize we are sinners. And we deserve that wrath. And yet, God being merciful to us in Jesus saves us. Therefore, it should create a humbleness in us. Not a boastfulness. Not an arrogance. Not a Christian nationalism. Not a, a look at us. We have all Sunday is not because we have it together, but because we desperately need Jesus. Amen. And the world needs to see a humble church, a humble people, who says, I don't have it together. This is why I need Jesus. That's kind of the reality of what it means to believe God. We humble ourselves because we know we don't. We know that we're a mess apart from God's grace for us in Christ. That's what it means to Look at Nineveh and, and how they responded here. It says they put on a fast, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth. That's how they responded. Fasting is kind of a lost spiritual discipline in our day. And something we don't talk a lot about in churches. Uh, I can't remember the last time I heard a call for a fast from a pulpit. It, it's been a few years. But, but this idea of fasting is. They abstain from food, and in the case of Nineveh, they actually abstain from food and water. They, they fast from it. The king calls for an etiquette for even the animals to fast from this. That would have been hard to do. They, they fast from this in order to show sorrow and repentance, to draw near to God. So church, what I'm not even challenging us to is for us to begin to read Introduce the idea of fasting into our, our regular lives. So now I recognize, like, as us as a body, most of us will not be able to do anything like Nineveh does it, of abstaining from food and water. But, brothers and sisters, a fast can be anything from giving up one meal to giving up any time set that you would normally spend doing something else for the purpose of pursuing God. It can be something as simple as 
maybe you take time to, to go to Starbucks, or well, you don't have a Starbucks, Realm, grab a cup of coffee, and or, or you spend time grinding and fixing your own coffee. Maybe it's you give up a meal. Maybe it's you give up a treat throughout the day. And spend that time you would normally do that and focus on the Lord, whether praying or reading His Word. Spending intentional time to draw near to God. We do this whether it's us seeking the Lord, us calling out for revival, it's us calling out for the Lord to move, whether it's us repenting. You know, even I know a few in the congregation have a, a decision that was laid before them. And spending some time just fasting it as you think about that decision. Whatever the case, we need to, to fast and put in our regular lives to fast and draw near to God. To see that it is not upon bread and bread alone that we live by, but by every word of God. We need that to draw near to Him. To confess our dependence upon Him. So I want to challenge you. Make time this week. So I'm going to even challenge us all to do this the same day. Now you don't have to do this, uh, on, but I'm going to challenge us to do Thursday this week for everyone in the church to fast. Maybe it's a meal. Maybe it's two meals. Maybe it's the whole day. Maybe it's just giving up something throughout the day. Whatever you decide, you know your body, you know what you're capable of. Give up something. And use that time purposely. It's not just calling us to fast for the sake of a diet. It's calling us to fast to draw near to God. So use that time in prayer. Use that time in the Word to seek the Lord. Fast and draw near to Him. Let us repent of sins that we need to repent of. Let us confess our utter dependence upon the Lord as we fast. Let us feel that. Not only, though, did they fast, they put on sackcloth. Sackcloth is, is the idea. I grew up on a, a farm, so like we had seed bags that we would put corn in. And it, these are rough, raw things. And this is the kind of idea of this sackcloth. It's, it's a rough, humbling-looking material versus fine robes and clothes. They wouldn't have been in their Sunday best as they put on sackcloth. It would have been at the best uh, filthy jeans and, and Mike would know this probably more like covered in concrete than it would be <laughs> in the sense of being well dressed. They put on sackcloth as a means of humbling themselves and the means of mourning their sin. Christian, how many of us mourn our sin? Ninevites fear God's judgment and they mourn. They put on sackcloth. They're not even at least as far as we know, told to put on sackcloth. They do it as a means of humbling themselves and brokenness for their guilt. How many of us, one, did this when we came to Christ, but we understand the fact that we need to continue repenting of sin and mourning and grieving our sin? Brothers and sisters, the more we grow in Christian maturity, the more we grow in our Christian discipleship, the more we should feel this. Why? It's not because all of a sudden we're sinning more. It's we're more recognizing how greater sin wants to begin with. Instead of being caught by the, the big things of, of struggling with lust, struggling with uh, 
typically guilty of my own sin before it ever comes out of my own mouth and heart. I'll get frustrated with Darcy and over something I didn't realize, even in my own heart, that I'm sinning against my wife. I'm sinning against her. It's like, I didn't get my way, so I'm offended. I recognize that now as doubt working before it ever flows out. Brothers and sisters, we should grieve that and be sorry for the Lord. Because of that, that's one reason like Darcy and I sit down and uh, try to on a weekly basis and have a, a weekly debrief in which we ask each other questions of how are we doing spiritually? How have I loved you well? How have I offended you? How could I be better in serving and loving you? Confessing these things to one another. Make that happen of that in your own homes, as well as with one another in this church. We need to confess these sins to be grievous and sorrowful for them. If we're to be a people that repents of sin, we need to be not only doing it when we first come to faith, but ongoing in keeping and bearing the fruit of repentance. We need to keep bearing that fruit. That's why they put on sacrifice. They put it on to mourn and grieve their sin. They were sorrowful. They were broken. But even, I, I've already kind of alluded to this, I want us to go back to this idea of the least to the greatest. Notice the effect it had. It didn't just reach a small little pocket in Nineveh. It affected all of it, from the least to the greatest. There in verse 6 it says, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out nightly to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. This reached the king's ears, whether it was through what John proclaimed, and it was just by word of mouth, or, or um, Johnny kept on preaching and preaching all the way up to the king. It had this great effect on the city of Nineveh. As God's word went out, it had massive effect. Brothers and sisters, if we want an awakening, we want to see this time of fruit and harvest begin to take root. We have to be faithful to proclaim this message, this simple gospel message. As it goes out, as God's word is proclaimed, he works in this way. He's done so throughout history. All the, the great awakenings, even in our own country, anytime revival has happened, how has it started? It's not started by with us creating revival. It started by us calling out the word of the Lord and it going forth and calling people to the Lord. But it must start with the people willing to go out and declare this word. It must start with us being faithful to proclaim the message of the gospel where we're at. I even want to add this Being full in Sunday school, being uh, full of youth, 
We realize the only way we're going to get there is if we're all involved in this path. If we're all involved in taking the gospel out. Most of you sitting in the pews have lived here far longer than I've ever thought about living in the same place. And I mean that in a good way. You've had steadiness here. You've had relationships. Think of how many of those relationships you could be using to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. If God uses his word in the simplicity to take the word out and it has this type of effect, why are we so idly sitting in our churches in this church and not going out and declaring the word? We must be faithful to declare it. If we want to see this kind of effect, this is how it's done. This is how it's always been done. It's not meant by having revival events. Yes, people come. But typically, even as uh, my, my mind is going blank, thinking of uh, Wesley Brothers, as they went out, as Whitfield went out, it was going and proclaiming the gospel out in the midst of the people. Doing, yes, we can go out and do as they did, open air evangelism, but even just in those relationships, have gospel conversations. Speak redemptively. Why? Because it's this message that brings the hope of the gospel. And as people hear it, they respond. And that's where we're going to look at in our third point. God relents. So, as God's word goes out, as the people hear it, as they believe it, it's only through the word that they come to know the one who is merciful, the one who is holy and just. And righteous. There in verse 9 it says, Who knows this means by the king? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Even before they knew that God was going to relent, they had a hope that God, in, in hearing of who he was, that he was merciful and gracious. That he showed mercy to whom he would show mercy. He showed grace to whom he would show grace. And they believe that. And they hope that. They hope by their turning that it, God would see this and show them that grace. Now they realized this was not what was going to save them. That their only hope was believing God and acting upon it. So this does not save them. It's only their belief in God that saves them. But God seeing this, God seeing their true repentance, their true turning, what does he do here in verse 10? Look, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. God poured out his grace as the people acknowledged their need in him. As they acknowledged that they needed his grace. God showed it to them. They didn't think they could earn it, but they tasted of God's grace in that moment. God spared them from the wrath that he was bringing, just as he has done for us who have placed our faith in Christ. As we place our faith in Christ, we can have surety just like the Ninevites did in that moment. God has spared us. God has shown us mercy. As Romans 8 says, therefore there is now no 
Christ's name we pray.